save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core beliefs of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And today's episode is so good, you guys. I have a guest on with me that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a very long time, and that is Dr. Everett Piper. He served as the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University for 17 years. He's written books like Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth, and then his latest book, which is called Grow Up, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation that we had. We talked particularly about safe spaces on college campuses and what that means. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where college uh, uh, students can retreat to a safe space to get out of taking tests and other things due to the wokeness that's in culture? This conversation is going to be so beneficial. I hope you will share it with all of your friends. We talk about gender. We talk about all the things. So I hope that you get so much out of this conversation today, and I'm very excited and honored to bring this to you today. So without any further ado, here's Dr. Everett Piper. Well, Dr. Piper, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I mentioned to you off air that I found an old note of mine back when I first started my podcast. This was maybe 2018, possibly 2019. And it said dream guests. And I had three or four names on there and your name was one of the names. And so this is just a dream come true for me. So welcome. So glad that you're here. Well, Lisa, I'm honored to be on your show. Hopefully this interview doesn't turn into a nightmare as opposed to a dream. So. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Well, give our audience a little bit of background. How did you, were you raised in a Christian home? How did you come to know the Lord? And then talk about what you do now. Um, I was actually raised by a Christian mom, and my dad was not a believer until maybe the last 10 years of his life. My father was a good man. He was a hardworking man, a truck driver, blue collar. Neither my mother nor my father had a high school diploma, so I did not come from an educated family. My mom was uh, a deeply committed believer, and she made sure that all of her sons went to church. I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was early, when I was young. Um, in um, if I remember correctly, I can't put a date on the calendar. I'm not one of those guys, but it was in uh, um, Bible school during the summer at our small little um, Holiness Church that I grew up in Hillsdale, Michigan. I then went off to Christian camp as a teenager, and I would, I would attribute camping experience, Christian camps, with um, solidifying my faith, where I really started to understand it and make a, a meaningful commitment as, a, as an adolescent, as a teenager. Um, I went to work in a factory when I graduated from high school. Like I said, I was blue collar. My mom didn't have a high school degree, neither did my dad. Um, just to graduate from high school was an accomplishment in our family. I went off to uh, work in an auto supply, auto parts factory called Hillsdale Tool Manufacturing in Southern Michigan, making good money. It was one of the best paying factories in town. And I was working third shift and uh, spending my factory income on 
important things like expensive cars and motorcycles, snowmobiles and whatnot, like a lot of uh, factory workers were doing. And one night during um, a lunch break, I worked third shift at three o'clock in the morning, a man who happened to be a private business owner, he, uh, he, he owned a flower shop in town. He sat next to me at lunch and he said, why are you working here? And I said, same reason you are, I'm trying to make money. And he was working the second job in the factory to try to make payroll and cover some of his private business ventures. And uh, he said, why don't you go to college? So I thought, why not? Well, there was a Christian college about a half hour up the road. So I washed off the grease from the factory work and went up and enrolled in a gospels and acts class at Spring Arbor University in Spring Arbor, Michigan. And um, just to see if I could do it. I didn't understand what college was about. Uh, had no idea what a liberal arts education was or what it was for, but I enrolled in a class to see if I could handle college work and I did well and decided to sell my car and sell my toys and I had enough money to go to college for a couple semesters and the rest is history. God used education to open up a lot of doors in my life that just wouldn't have been opened otherwise. So I am a big believer in Christian education and the power of uh, an education that's grounded in a biblical worldview to change your life for the good. And you are president emeritus at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, so you have a rich background in academia. And I remember first discovering your commentary on the not a daycare theme back when you were interviewing, I think maybe with Frank Turek. I can't remember who you who I had heard you talk to about it, but it caused quite a stir in the media. Uh, what led you to go down that road of the not a daycare kind of commentary? Maybe tell us what that's about. Well, I was president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University at the time. It was 2015. And the Snowflake Rebellion was fresh in the news. The University of Missouri scenario that was playing out at that time. And there were other, other stories on the East Coast and the West Coast with regard to college students rebelling against certain speakers and trying to cancel them because these speakers had compromised their safe space. The, the lexicon of the American vocabulary was being changed at the time. Trigger warnings, microaggressions were in play. The snowflake rebellion was, it's not a word, it's not a term that I coined. It had been coined by somebody else. So this whole idea of college age people, students, feeling like they should control the educational narrative. And if there was a speaker such as yourself or Frank Turek or uh, Dennis Prager, Ben Shapiro, and even secularists who are not Christians, such as Bill Maher or Adam Carolla, were speaking on a given campus. If they said something that offended the student population, these speakers were being uh, literally protested off the campus. So academic freedom was seriously being called into question. Well, within that context, uh, Oklahoma Wesleyan, being a Christian university, and I as its president, we were deeply committed to academic freedom within the context of a biblical worldview. Um, I really believe in the words of Christ, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. I believe that Jesus said that for a variety of different reasons, but one of them certainly has to include the beauty of freedom that is grounded only in God's truth. And that as we engage in debate, as we have a good, robust exchange of ideas, as we have a as human beings, as we have an argument, if you will, we can pursue truth and have more freedom at the end of the day rather than less as the result of honoring the referee on the sidelines. It's going to blow the whistle on the game rather than digressing to your power or my power in, in that conversation. Because if power is going to dictate where the conversation is going to go, you're not free. Okay, with that as context, Oklahoma Wesleyan Christian University still has required chapels for its students 
twice a week, Wednesday and Friday. I did not go to chapel on this day. I had something else going on, some work or whatnot, so I skipped chapel. But afterwards, I received a phone call from the chapel speaker, who happened to be the vice president for student development. Uh, he was on my cabinet, the dean of students. His name is Kyle. He said, Dr. Piper, were you in chapel today? I said, no, I'm sorry. I didn't get a chance to hear you speak. I had other work to do, so I'm up here at my house. He said, oh, well, I'm calling just to give you a heads up. I said, really, what's going on? He said, well, we had a student play the victimization card today. I said, really? He said, I was the speaker, and after I was done talking, a student approached me at the platform, at the podium, as all the other students were exiting the auditorium. One student came up to me and he poked his finger in my chest and he said, you offended me. You singled me out. You made me feel uncomfortable and you made my peers feel uncomfortable. And I said, Kyle, really? One of our students at Oklahoma Wesleyan? What was he offended by? What was the topic of your homily, of your chapel speech, of your sermon? And he said, you won't believe this one. 1 Corinthians 13. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, nor does it boast. That offended one of our students? He said, yeah, I'm a monster. I spoke, I preached on love. I said, Kyle, give me a copy of the text of your sermon, of your homily, because I knew that Kyle always used a text. He never ad-libbed. He always basically uh, presented a very short 15-minute, 20-minute maximum talk, and he always stuck to, stuck to his script. So I said, send me a copy of your text. I want to read it. And I'm thinking he must have opened with uh, political humor, sarcasm, something that went awry that offended this kid. So I read chap the, uh, Kyle's chapel talk from cover to cover, and there was nothing in it. There's no sarcasm, political humor, nothing. It's a pure, simple presentation of 1 Corinthians 13. And I was incredulous. I could not believe that my campus had joined the Snowflake Rebellion, and that I've got a kid that has intentionally chosen a Christian university because we stand very clearly and boldly for the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom. These are our essential cornerstones, the four pillars of our mission statement. No student goes to Oklahoma Wesleyan University without knowing that, but yet this kid is offended by a sermon on love. And I thought, my land. So I was incredulous. And at the time, I was being invited to write a weekly opinion piece for the local newspaper, the Bartlesville Examiner Enterprise. And I thought, okay, I know what my topic's gonna be this weekend. I decided to write an open letter to my students and my faculty and my staff, as well as the local community if they cared to listen in. So I essentially in 800 words said this, young man, that feeling of discomfort you had when you heard that sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, it's called your conscience, and you might want to attend to it. If, if you expect us to coddle you rather than to confront you, if you expect to be made to feel comfortable rather than challenged, then you need to go to a different university. And I went on to say, a good sermon is supposed to make you feel guilty. That's the point. We want you to confess your sins, not feel good about them. I was really frustrated. And I finally concluded, like I said, after about 800 words of ranting, and I said, my land, this is a university. It's not a daycare. Well, generally when I wrote these, uh, these op-eds for the Bartlesville Examiner Enterprise, five people read them and three people cared on a weekly basis. <laughs> but, but on this particular week, somebody got a hold of that opinion piece and they sent it to Glenn Beck. And Glenn, posted it on his Facebook page on Thanksgiving morning, 
this was Thanksgiving week. So the, the story I just uh, recited for you and summarized for you took place, uh, let's say, uh, Monday or Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So on Thanksgiving morning, I'm getting up early and I'm doing my reading. I'm sitting in my leather chair with my Labrador retriever, keeping my feet warm. And I'm reading through oh, a variety of different things and my phone buzzes. And I'll look down and I, I notice that it's buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. My phone's going off, it's going crazy. And it's because Glenn Beck has posted that opinion piece on his Facebook page. By noon, about 30, 35,000 people had read that article. By one or two o'clock in the afternoon when my family sit down for dinner, uh, about 70,000, 80,000 wow. people had read the article. And I've never had anything like this happen to me. I've jokingly said, like, I, you know, five people read my stuff, three people care. Uh, my, my wife's one of them, the other two, I don't know. But on that day, uh, 80,000, 90,000, we were just watching it click away. Within two weeks, about three and a half million people that we know wow. had read that article Drudge and Dreher and Limbaugh and Beck and O'Reilly and Megyn Kelly and even NBC Today covered the story I just shared with you, Elisa, and they cited it as one of the top 10 news stories of 2015. So I'll conclude my little answer to your question by <laughs> asking a rhetorical question. Why in the world did that article cause so much of a stir? I didn't say anything all that scholarly or deep or meaningful, quite frankly. What good parent hasn't challenged their son or their daughter to grow up, to, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to get back on the horse, to get back in the game, no pain, no gain. I mean, if you're an athlete, if you're a musician, if, you're, if you've got a parent that has challenged you in your life, you know that these are simple principles of maturity. And that's all I did. I said, we're gonna challenge you, we're not gonna coddle you. This is a university, it's not a daycare. But yet it became the top, one of the top 10 news stories of 2015 on NBC Today. Why? I think it's because I said something that everybody was thinking and they were begging for somebody in the academy, especially a college president, a faculty member, to just call a spade a spade and say that the snowflake rebellion and cancel culture is very dangerous. And it's not the recipe for a mature adult culture. It's a recipe for perpetual adolescence really is what it is. Uh, so that's my daycare story. Yeah, when I, I'm thinking back to when I was 11 and 12 and I was doing competitive gymnastics, and I was at the gym just about every weekday for at least two or three hours. And one of the things that the coaches would do is that if you get on the high beam and you were trying to do something and you fell or in it hurt even, the first thing they would do is make you get back up and do the exact same thing again. Even And that was to push you to overcome your fear. And I'm even remembering if your hands got a little bit torn from the bars, they would spray this really painful, like stinging spray on it and make you get right back up and do it again. And I'm thinking, I wonder if it's that way now. But I look back on those things and I think that was so beneficial to me for somebody to push me to not give into my fear, to push through the pain. Uh, but I don't think that it's probably like that anymore. If you would go to a, a gymnastics class and and so I'm thinking about all of these safe spaces, all of this sort of coddling is a good word that you used. How did we get here? Is this the influence of postmodernism and social media together? What's your opinion on how did we get to the place where students are viewing colleges as a place where they should primarily be made to be felt to, to feel safe rather than a place to be challenged and be educated? 
Well, I definitely think uh, social media has had a great deal to do with it. Um, I'll answer by saying I think there are three entities in any culture, historically or contemporary, that um, have the responsibility of inculcating their values in their progeny, the next generation. And I think those three entities are parents and pastors and teachers. And I think all three entities in our current cultural discussion have dropped the ball. Hmm. I mean, parents, uh, helicopter parenting, um, participation trophies. I mean, essentially, why do I have a student, an 18-year-old kid at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, who feels empowered to challenge a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13? I mean, that kid just didn't come up with that idea on that day. I would argue that there was a pattern that led him to feel enabled, empowered, privileged enough to challenge anything that made him feel uncomfortable. I mean, I've had people hear the story that I shared with regard to 1 Corinthians 13 and say, that can't be true. You're making that up. I'm not making this up. This is true. This kid felt uncomfortable for not being loving, I guess, for feeling guilty, for feeling challenged on one of the least offensive passages in all of the Bible. If you wanted me to identify the least offensive passage, I'd say that's got to be up there in the top three or four, doesn't it? (laughs) But this, this young man felt that this was something that he should not have to be subjected to because it made him feel bad. And I think parents need to understand that our responsibility is to be a mother and a father and not the best friend to our sons and daughters. There's a huge difference between being a dad and a mom and being a best friend. And I think way too many parents uh, via helicopter parenting and enablement and wanting to be the best friend rather than be a disciplinarian have created uh, little monsters that feel entitled to everything rather than feeling challenged and pushed, pushed out of the nest, so to speak. So I would, I would argue that parenting, uh, by and large, and I'm not suggesting that everybody's a bad parent. Uh, clearly, we have some very good moms and dads. But I think generally within our culture, we've got a problem. Uh, the second uh, entity that I think has dropped the ball would be pastors. Uh, you cover this a lot in terms of the evangelical community. Uh, moral therapeutic deism, as the message that's being preached from a lot of evangelical pulpits right now, as opposed to the gospel, the the simple hard truths of the Bible, honoring the Bible as the word of God and it being inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and true in our lives, as opposed to our postmodern deconstruction and then reconstruction of those truths to be an image of our own liking, something that looks like uh, the God you see in the mirror rather than the God we read about in the Bible. I think a lot of the evangelical community has dropped the ball in terms of preaching the word. Hmm. Um, So parents and pastors, and then the third entity, and this is my profession, so I'll really hit this one hard. I've got the right to, and I think even the responsibility to call the ivory tower into question. Parents, helicopter parenting. Preachers, have you been preaching the word or moral therapeutic deism? Um, Education, professors, if you will, to further the alliteration of parents, uh, pastors, and professors. Education matters. Ideas have consequences. I'm fond of citing Richard Weaver's 1948 seminal work, Ideas Have Consequences. And you don't even need to open up the book to understand what he's saying. Ideas have consequences. They matter. Good ideas, good culture, good community, good kids, good government, good church, good country. Bad ideas, you'll get the opposite. In other words, what your grandmother told you, garbage in, garbage out. There's no such thing as moral neutrality. 
there's no such thing in my view as a neutral idea. All ideas are going to bear fruit, good or bad. And when you're teaching garbage for generations in our colleges and our universities, you're going to get garbage in our culture. When you're teaching self-absorption and narcissism, we should not be surprised that we have a culture that's self-absorbed and narcissistic. We're getting exactly what we should get when we teach given ideas. And I think the ideas that we're teaching right now are broken. Uh, post-modernity. I think the selfishness and self-focus of self-actualization rather than the selflessness that comes from preaching the gospel. I could go on and on and on in terms of the ideas that are endemic within the ivory tower and the academy that are bearing very negative fruit in our culture right now. And I think the cancel culture is the is the poster child of that mm. particular problem. You, you've been quite critical of the academic, quote-unquote, safe spaces. Can you give our listeners and viewers an example or two or three of what that looks like on an average college campus? I, I'm coming from a bit of an outsider perspective in that I didn't go to college. I think I did maybe three semesters of uh, music major at, at the local community college when I was 19. But other than that, I've I've really just don't have much experience in the academic world. I'm for the first time uh, taking my first couple of classes for credit at Southern Evangelical Seminary and loving those. But for those of us kind of on the outside going, what does that mean in reality on a college campus, this whole idea of safe spaces? And then why are you so critical of that? Well, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, and that is Good Ranchers. I love Good Ranchers. It's American meat delivered right to your door. It's all frozen on dry ice, ready to throw into your freezer. I absolutely love that it takes my mind off of having to stress out about what I'm going to feed my family for dinner. And here are the things I love about Good Ranchers. I love that they are Christians who have Christian values. I love that all of the meat is grown and harvested in America, so you don't have to guess where your meat is coming from. I also love that they don't include antibiotics and hormones. It's just such high quality meat that I can trust and I know that I'm not giving my kids and my husband all of this extra stuff. Now, this is a great month to subscribe to Good Ranchers, the month of May, because if you subscribe in this month using the code ALISA at goodranchers.com, you're gonna get $30 off of your first box. So the other thing that makes this a great month to subscribe to Good Ranchers is that we've all seen our grocery bills go up with inflation. But if you subscribe in the month of May, you're going to lock in your price for two years. Your price for your subscription will not increase for two years. And that should give us a lot of peace of mind of knowing that we know exactly where our meat is coming from. We know the quality of it. And we know that our price isn't going to go up for two years. So go to GoodRanchers.com. Use the code ALISA for $30 off your first box. That's GoodRanchers.com. Use the code ALISA. Well, I, I assume most people have probably read a news story or two about what takes place at Berkeley or Brown or Emory or even the Christian College University across the nation. Dennis Prager shows up to speak on the West Coast. I can't remember whether it was UCLA or one of the other California, University of California schools, but Dennis Prager, a conservative Jew, not a Christian, shows up to speak and he's protesting. He's heckled. He's silenced. Um, uh, ben Shapiro shows up at Berkeley and they won't allow him to talk. 
we see evidence of this recently at the University of uh, California, San Francisco, or San Francisco. Uh, the any, the uh, it was the story of uh, Riley Gaines, the swimmer, who is, I, as far as I know, she's not a Christian. I've heard nothing in her message that says she's a conservative Christian. The only thing that Riley Gaines is arguing for right now is the right for women to have their own sport. Yeah. Uh, that she shouldn't have to swim against biological men. She's arguing for Title IX, that everything that feminists have fought for is being lost at the hands of this misogynistic blackfacing of women under the transgender I ideology today. So Riley Gaines speaks out against that, speaks out against women's sports being stolen, speaks in favor of women being real and not a fabrication or a fantasy of some dysphoric male. She's basically arguing that I'm a fact, I'm not a fantasy of some delusional male. And what happens to Riley, Gay, Riley Gaines at the University of California, San Francisco? She's punched in the face by a biological male who's pretending to be a woman. And, and we're not doing anything about it. We're, 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 we're taking the side of the perpetrator rather than the victim. And we're not defending women. This is misogynistic to the extreme. As I said in a sentence or two earlier, this is literal blackfacing of women. What is any different here than a Caucasian dressing up in blackface and mimicking and mocking a caricature of the way African-Americans behave and look, at least in that bigot's mind, this is what we're doing when we blackface somebody. What's, why is it any different to do that to a woman and to, and to make her feel like there's a caricature of a female out there that everybody should stand up and applaud? I mean, this is ridiculous. So this is another example of cancel culture. If Riley Gaines speaks out against this degradation of the female, then she's canceled. She can't speak. If Dennis Prager speaks in favor of natural law and common sense, which is what Prager essentially does, he's canceled. He cannot speak. If Ben Shapiro does the same as a logic machine, I mean, Shapiro's brilliant. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just like you push a button and he's just going to start reciting yeah. the logical defense of any idea that's before him. But yet he's canceled. So it's not just conservative Christians that are being canceled. It's the conservative Jew. It's uh, this person who's a classical feminist who's defending the female and her right to things that have been earned over the decades in terms of Title IX and the right to have your scholarship, your shower, your bathroom, and maybe even your own pronouns. I mean, these are the things that are being canceled within the academy right now because of woke ideology. If it makes somebody feel uncomfortable, then you can't say it. Well, I've got news for the people that want to cancel those that make us feel uncomfortable. Welcome to the real world. Welcome to adulthood. I mean, it's called cognitive dissonance. You do not grow if, if you don't experience the tension in life that makes you feel uncomfortable. If all you feel in life is safety, you're never going to mature. You're always going to be stagnant. You're always going to be a child or an adolescent, regardless of your, of your uh, actual age. You're going to behave immaturely if you've never been challenged, if you've never been disciplined. The Lord disciplines those he loves because he wants us to grow. As iron sharpens iron, let one man sharpen another. There are, repeat, there, are, there are verses that are replete within Scripture that tell us that we have to recognize that maturity comes with not safety, but goodness. I'll take a breath after this analogy, but one of my favorite episodes in the Chronicles of Narnia is the story of when the children first enter through the wardrobe and they're experiencing this, uh, this winter 
wonderland of sorts. But everything's cold and everything's sterile, and there seems to be an element of fear in Narnia. And the children stumble across some talking animals. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are down at the creek, and the children, the Peavency kids, enter into the beaver's den. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking about that the rumor is that Aslan is on the loose that he's returning to Narnia, and that when he does return, that winter will melt away and spring will bloom anew. Well, the children don't know who Aslan is, so they ask. Well, he's the lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea. The children are afraid. A lion? He's going to come back? Is he dangerous? Will he hurt us? Will he kill us? So they ask Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver guffaws. He says, is Aslan safe? Of course not. He's not safe but he's good. And I think that speaks volumes to this cancel culture issue. Is the great lion Aslan safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. Is the great lion of the academy, the ivory tower safe? No, it's not safe, but it is good. Is the great lion of Jesus Christ, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the lion of Judah, the lamb of God, the word made flesh and dwelling among us, is Jesus safe? No, Jesus is not safe. That was C.S. Lewis's point. He's not safe but he's good. There's a huge difference between safety and goodness. And unfortunately, the ivory tower right now has elevated safety above goodness when it should be the opposite way around. We mm. should we should crave goodness at, at the expense of safety. I mean, during COVID, what did we see during COVID? If one more person said to me, be safe, I was going to strangle him. <laughs> I don't care about being safe. Yeah. I care about goodness. Yeah. That's good. So many directions I want to go right now, but I want to stick with a theme you introduced a few minutes ago, because I was following the story of J.K. Rowling, who has famously, at least they've attempted to cancel her, and in many cases been successful with certain things. Uh, but I was following this story with my daughter, actually, because she and I together like to watch certain YouTube channels where, they're, where they'll review games and play different Xbox games and, and show you how they work. And there was a huge controversy when the new Harry Potter video game came out because all of the famous YouTubers who review the games had to decide, are we going to review this game or are we going to cancel this game? And in what we discovered, most people, because of the stance that J.K. Rowling has taken, as far as like the athlete you mentioned, saying, hey, feminism means something. The word woman means something. You can't just put on a woman costume and say you're a woman because that threatens everything that, frankly, feminists have uh, fought so well. That's the thing that's so strange to me because I'm I'm hugely critical of modern feminism myself, but yet I look at the movement and I think everything that you guys have worked for, you're just yeah. giving it away to men, the very men who, you know, you've been so yeah. critical of. But she, you know, of course, being labeled a turf, trans exclusionary radical feminist, I believe it's called. So all of these gamers had to decide: Do we? review this game or will we get canceled? See, I think that was the real question. It wasn't so much from a moral standpoint, they're saying, oh, should I review this game from on moral grounds? They're saying, am I going to get canceled if I review it? So it's been bizarre watching this happen. But you wrote uh, a column in the Washington Times where you argued that America is now officially a nation of misogynists. You also uh, talk about the ivory tower becoming the Tower of Babel, that's B-A-B-B-L-E, because of the LGBTQ Kool-Aid. And it seems to me, when I look out into culture, this is the issue. The LGBTQ, particularly the trans ideology, 
ideology. And for anybody listening and watching, when we're talking about transgender, radical gender theory, all of these things, we're not talking about individual people who might be really struggling with something. We're talking about the activism. We're talking about the agenda to really LGBTQify everything in culture. So talk about how you think that leads to a na becoming a nation of misogynists. Well, I've argued for years, Elisa, that the LGBTQ narrative, and I'll, I'll define it this way, that we are defined subjectively rather than objectively. That we're gonna define ourselves by our feelings rather than the facts, which is really the message of the rainbow cabal, of the rainbow agenda, that if you feel it, that is who you are. In other words, we've made human identity nothing but the sum total of human inclinations. Your passions, your proclivities, your libido defines you. And Christians of all people should understand that we can def be defined and should be defined, must be defined by our Lord, not our libido. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. Um, we must be born again. You can't be too easily satisfied with being born that way. The whole message of the gospel is that when you're baptized, you die, you die and you rise again in life in Jesus Christ. So the, the old person and with its passions, proclivities, its inclinations is the antithesis of what it means to be a human being, especially within the church. And it, it the side B Christianity drives me crazy with mm. this claim that somehow you can identify yourself in Christ by those inclinations, those passions, those proclivities. And I appreciate so much your commentary and Rosario, Rosario Butterfield's commentary and others who are saying, no, that is an ontological error. That's mm -hmm. an error in terms of human identity. I've actually, and, and I don't mean this, I want people to hear me on this. We are the Imago Dei. We're, we're, we're made in the image of God. We're not the Imago dog, okay? Imago Dei, image of God. Imago dog, image of the animal. Um, I live in Oklahoma. I'm in ranch country, and I've got a few cows and horses myself. And I can tell you right now, I've never walked out into my pasture with my horses and cows or driven through the large ranches of Oklahoma. I've never seen cows or horses arguing with one, one another or doing a mm -hmm. podcast. Never seen it. It just doesn't happen. And the, the answer to why is obvious. They don't do this. They don't have this. They don't have the thumbprint of God on their heart, mind, and soul. They're not made in the image of God. They're made in the image of the animal, and they are governed and defined by their gut, by their belly, by their hungers, by their passions. I know this. I have horses, okay? I have cows. They're not, um, cognit they're not cognitively aware of different ideas. Human beings are. So when I say Imago Dei, Imago Dog, I'm not insulting any group of people that have fallen prey to their temptations. What I'm doing is I'm elevating that group of people to the highest compliment that's ever been given to any human being, and that is you are the image of God. You do not have to define yourself like an animal does, by its belly, by its gut, by its libido, by its drives. You're not defined by the things that drive you. You're defined by God himself. And I think that's a message that's a winning message in our culture right now. I think I went on a rabbit trail for you there, Lisa, and I'm, and I'm sorry, but um, this issue of misogynist, I think everything I just said plays into that. Because if you're gonna dumb down the definition of a human being to nothing but the sum total of their inclinations, then 
to uh, paraphrase Ben Shapiro, the facts don't matter. It's all about your feelings. So the biological fact of the female doesn't matter anymore because if everything is defined subjectively, and if I claim that I am nothing but the sum total of my feelings, my inclinations, my passions, my proclivities, if my libido defines me, if I'm not objectively defined by the Lord, then I can make it up as I go. And I can be anything I want to be. I can be Barney. I can be Peter Pan. I can be Tarzan. I can be a woman. I can be a dog, a pig, a cat, or a cow. It doesn't matter. And that's how absurd the cultural conversation is becoming right now. We actually have people arguing for cross-speciesism, that somehow they can define themselves as being something that they indeed are not, a cow, a cat, a dog. We know that that's happening. Now, some people were, will maybe listening and say, well, that's absurd. That'll never happen. Well, if I would have told you five years ago that men would supplant women and steal everything that a woman has the right to, your bathroom, your shower, your scholarship, your sport, your identity, and your very mm -hmm. dignity, that a man could steal that just by dressing up and playing make-believe on any given day. And I don't mean that to be cruel or crass. It's just a fact of what's going on. If I would have said that to your audience five, ten years ago, they might have said, Piper's being rather extreme. That's hyperbole. But here we are. Again, what I said earlier, Richard Weaver, ideas have consequences. Well, the idea of subjective identity claims that you can define yourself any way you choose, rather than being confined to the ontological facts of your existence, male, female, human being, not an animal. These seem to be obvious things that we could all agree on. And we could five sec seconds ago in human history. But yeah. today we've turned the, everything upside down. Good is evil and evil is good. Bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Male is female and a female is a male. A child is an adult and an adult is a child. We've blurred the distinction of these categories. And who loses in every culture that has ever blurred these distinctions, whether it be the Roman Empire or the United States of America, who loses first? Women and children. They yeah. always do. We sacrifice women and we sacrifice children on the altar of this male libido. And that's exactly what's happening in our culture right now. Uh, C.S. Lewis warned of it in The Abolition of Man. He could have titled it The Abolition of Women. Mm -hmm. We're misogynists now. Women, are, women don't exist. Feminism is dead. You don't have your own sport. You yeah. do not even have your own pronouns. We've taken those away from you. So that's why I say we're a nation of misogynists because we are admitting it right now. We don't like the female because mm. we will degrade the female, dumb it down, and redefine the female to our own liking to the point where you've got a six, seven guy swimming against Riley Gaines and stealing everything that she's worked for. And the liberal establishment, the progressives, the ivory tower, they're championing this. They're applauding yeah. this guy who has stolen what is rightfully a woman. How is that yeah. not misogyny? Yeah, no, that's so good. And you mentioned how this whole ideology degrades the female uh, turns femaleness into a caricature. Do you think, or have you given much thought to what connection that might have with the the sort of explosion we've seen among young girls with rapid onset transgender identities? Because this is something I'm sure. Have you read Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage? Uh, parts of it, but not the whole book. Yeah, I, that book really opened my eyes to the just the rapid onset trend among young girls. Do you think that degradation of the female might have something to do with that? Absolutely. Um, 
I was reading a poll last week that the Gen Zers are currently identifying LGBTQIA at 19.7%. 19.7% of Gen Zers now identify as LGBTQIA, whereas millennials were only at about 6% in 2014. And today, millennials have increased from 6% to 12%. Well, that's bad enough. But Gen Z comes along, and Gen Z is already identifying, if you want to round it up, at 20%. Whereas tr the traditionals and the baby boomers are down where you would expect them to be, in the 5% or less category. Now, you got to ask yourself, why? Why do we have so many of these, uh, these kids we're raising right now confused and identifying as something that they indeed are not, identifying with their feelings rather than the biological, ontological facts of life. It's because they've been taught to. Mm -hmm. We've raised up a generation of people that are lying to themselves, and we celebrate those lies. We've imbibed the Kool-Aid of post-modernity. Um, you know, I was once asked to define pre-modernity, modernity, and post-modernity. And I think this ties into the question. Uh, pre-modernity Everything up until the Enlightenment, you could argue it was um, the supernatural, that knowledge was revelational. Knowledge was supernatural. It was outside the human being, that there was a knowledge that came from God. Even if you weren't uh, Jewish at the time, you still acknowledged that there was a supernatural revelation that helped you understand your existence. And then the Enlightenment comes along, and it's not supernatural any longer. It's simply natural. If you can't taste it, touch it, see it, and feel it, if it's not empirical, then it just isn't so. So pre-modern is supernatural, and modern, modernity, the Enlightenment, is simply natural. Well, we work our way through that, and then all of a sudden comes along post-modernity. Well, what's post-modernity? If pre-modern is supernatural and modern is simply natural, I would argue that post-modern is Superman, the Ubermensch. It's what mm. the Nazis called the ultimate in human power and existence. And isn't that true where we are right now in our culture? It's not supernatural. It's not revelation anymore. And it's not even simply natural. We deny science. We are the ultimate science deniers right, right now. Yes, We're denying yes. biology. We're denying the reality that we see in the mirror. We are supermen. We are the ubermensch. We will define everything. It's the original sin. Mm. Uh, we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we became as gods. We don't like the God we read about in the Bible, so we love that God we see in the mirror, and we will define everything. We don't need God to tell us what's good and evil, right and wrong, just or unjust any longer. We can do it ourselves because we are as God, and we will decide everything. And that's the LGBTQ narrative. That's what's wrong with it. It's, 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 the insult to the human being to dumb down you and me and everybody else to nothing but a fabrication and a fantasy, a subjective definition rather than the objective reality that is given to us by God. And the terrifying thing to me about all of that is when we root objective truth, or I guess you could just say truth, within ourselves and our own feelings and proclivities and inclinations and attractions and whatever you want to call it, and instead of objective reality, then it's really just whoever's the most powerful, whoever has the most muscle to inflict their worldview on everyone else, 
which again is, you know, who loses out? It's the women and children in that kind of scenario and a lot of other people as well. We mentioned the degradation of the female. And I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about even, but then there's this attack on male as well, especially, you know, middle-class white males are the oppressor. They're and I, I just think about some 12-year-old—I think about my son. He's 11. You think about a, a teenage, just white boy who's already being told, hey, you're everything that's wrong with the world. And then you wonder, too, if there isn't some of maybe that demographic taking cover under the LGBTQ umbrella, because now you're not the oppressor. You get to identify with the oppressed group which in ironically is the popular crowd, <laughs> you know, that has the most uh, privilege right now. Uh, and, and it's just, it's all just so upside down and backwards. And I think that's what post-modernity really gives us. But then of course, as Christians and you in particular, are just constantly defending a biblical worldview, how do you define that? Because whenever I say something like, historic Christianity or biblical worldview, typically the progressives will say, oh, well, which one? There's all these different denominations and everybody, nobody, none of the Christians can agree on what is quote unquote biblical. So what do you, how would you define the biblical worldview? Well, I'm a Colsonite. I studied under Chuck Colson at um, the Colson Center Fellows Program. He used to call it the Centurions Program, where he would choose a hundred people per year to, uh, to uh, pass the baton to, to teach a biblical worldview, how to defend it. And I, that was a blessing. Um, I think Chuck Colson was a prophet of our time. He was God's gift to uh, that generation. I was honored to spend a little time with him. Chuck Colson taught us that every worldview, whether you're a Buddhist or a Baptist, a Mormon or a Methodist, whether you're an Anglican or an atheist, every worldview answers four basic questions. Origin of man, nature of man, redemption of man and responsibility of man. And when I say man, obviously mankind. Origin of man, where do we come from? Are you the product of the primordial soup or are you a special creation of God? If you're nothing but the uh, something that rose out of the swamp, then you have no moral significance different than a dog, a pig, a cat, or cow, or even a virus for that matter. Why should you win rather than the COVID virus if you're nothing but the product of the swamp and the soup? That's a very good question. We need to answer that. Uh, nature of man. Well, if you rose up out of the swamp, you're going to have an argument for the nature of humanity that's very different than if you argue that you're a creation of God. Are you good? Are you evil? Uh, is there such a thing as original sin? So the nature of humanity is a question that every worldview has to answer. Origin of man, nature of man. And then redemption of man. Okay, so if you have a problem, how are you going to solve it? So if you're a Marxist and you believe that you're the product of the primordial soup, you rose up out of the swamp and that there is no such thing as good or evil, you're gonna argue that class conflict, whether it be economic or whether it be sociological, you're gonna argue that that conflict is gonna be the consummation of a power struggle that, in, that ultimately ends in utopia. That's the, that's the solution. That's the redemption of man. The gospel is very different. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the 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 uh, the argument from the gospel is very different in terms of fixing the problem than it would be from Marxism or a different worldview. And then finally, at the end of the day, what's your responsibility? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to engage in culture in the market square of ideas? How are you going to engage uh, relationally and politically, theologically? 
in the market square to argue for and to defend the best model for human dignity and freedom that's out there, and that is the biblical worldview. I mean, one of the things I think we need to do as we engage culture is answer those questions or at least ask those questions. In fact, sometimes it's more important to ask than it is to answer. When Jesus, the smartest guy that ever walked the face of the earth, arguably, he is God, my land, he probably could have won any argument had he chosen to. When Jesus himself rarely argues and instead simply asks a rhetorical question, and then he shuts up and he lets his opponent's worldview collapse. Mm -hmm. Whose face is on the coin? Why do you call me Lord? Do you want to pick up the, the first stone and throw it? And then Jesus, the second person of the triune God, the word, he spells himself as an alphabet, the alphabet and omega, excuse me, the alpha and omega. He spells himself out as an alphabet, the beginning and the end. When Jesus himself is just quiet and doesn't respond other than to ask that question, maybe we should follow suit and ask other good questions. For example, I like to ask people, can you tolerate my intolerance? Do you hate hateful people? Are you sure that nothing is sure? Do you know that nothing can be known? And are you absolutely confident there are no absolutes? And in my world, the academic world, the ivory tower, their heads explode. They don't know mm -hmm. how to answer those questions. And the, I think the shrewd um, apologetic style at that point, be wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. I think the, the shrewd Christian disciplines himself to keep your mouth shut and let the worldview of our, of our opponent uh, stew a little bit. And they'll recognize there's something wrong with this. I once had a young man, he, he probably had the IQ twice, twice mine. He's brilliant, brilliant young man. He looked me in the eye once at a Christian camp and he said, um, the problem with you conservatives is you always think you're right. <laughs> My response, well, do you think you're right for criticizing me for thinking I'm right? He doesn't know what to say because he's sawing off the branch upon which he sits. Yeah. He's a dog chasing its tail. It's a self-refuting claim. It's a self-refuting worldview. Yeah. How can you be a feminist if you don't believe in the feminine? Be quiet, listen, let them answer the question. If women aren't real, how can you have women's rights? How can you believe in, um, in child services and, and taking care of children if you're gonna dumb down the definition or the distinction between men and or, uh, adults and children? If there, mm -hmm. if there is no distinction between the adult and the child any longer, if a 10-year-old can choose transgender sexual surgery, then why wouldn't you argue for the same 10-year-old to consent to sexual yeah. behavior, sexual acts with an adult? That's where they're going. In fact, the United Nations just made that claim this past week. Anyway, mm -hmm. I digress. I went on a rabbit trail there, but I think no, it all ties together. Good. No, this is so good. And sometimes they don't get what you're, what you're kind of throwing down a little bit. I remember a long time ago, years ago, when I used to interact more in the comment section of my Facebook page with progressive Christians, and there was a, a woman who came on and she was accusing me of just being so certain. You're just obsessed with certainty. You want certainty in everything. And I just wrote a little comment and said, well, are you certain about that? That that's what I'm doing? And like, she didn't get it. She was just like, well, yes, because, and then she gave this long response yeah. as why I was trying to be so certain. Sometimes they don't get it, but maybe she went back a little bit later and went, oh, okay. But you did mention, uh, you know, to some people, it might sound like an extreme thing to say about lowering 
the, the age of consent to where there's blurring the distinctions between child and adult. But I remember years ago, over 10 years ago, when all of the progressive Christians in my sphere were discussing gay marriage and how important it was that they wanted gay marriage to be brought into, uh, to be legal. And somebody said, well, it's a slippery slope because if you start with that, then you're going to move on to polyamory. And I remember they just jumped on this person. It is never going to get to polyamory. Don't be silly. Well, you can look, if you just, anybody has your computer open, you can just Google the words progressive Christianity and polyamory together. And a host of articles will pop up with progressive, popular progressive Christians defending polyamory, even calling it holy and beautiful just 10 years later. So nobody can tell me that there's not a slippery slope there. With Once we start changing definitions, changing some of these concrete foundations, you don't have a leg to stand on as far as pulling the reins back when it comes to certain things like uh, the topics we've talked about today. Um, but uh, where do you see this all going in, in 10 years, just from your experience in the, in the academic world and how what's in academia tends to trickle down into the mainstream? Where do you see this going? Is this Are we going to collapse or are Christians going to stand up? Hopefully, I pray they will, but what's going to happen, do you think? I know you're not a prophet, but... Take an educated um, guess there. Well, uh, logically, I don't think it ends well. I mean, uh, the idea, if ideas have consequences and we're imbibing all these bad ideas, then Western culture is in trouble. However, Jesus promised us something. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I believe Jesus keeps his promises. I don't think he's going to violate that particular commitment he's made to his bride, to the church. I think you probably know who Jim Garlow is. Um, Jim Garlow is uh, a consummate writer. He's a golden tongue orator. Jim was the head pastor at Skyline Wesleyan Church in, in uh, San Diego. He was John Maxwell's successor. John Maxwell was the head pastor of that church before John Maxwell went out to become John Maxwell, the leadership guru. Garlow succeeded Maxwell, and Garlow is an author and um, a preacher in his own right. Jim Garlow was on my board at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. When Prop 8 was going through California, and people forget that even on the crazy West Coast, that the people of California voted for traditional marriage. The people of California voted in a majority for traditional marriage. And then Obergefeld comes along and they overrule the whole thing. Well, during that debate for Prop 8 in California, Jim Garlow was one of the leaders fighting for biblical marriage. The day of the vote, when, it, when they won, I called Jim up and I said, Jim, congratulations. You fought the good fight. You won. I, I really believe California would have gone differently had it not been for your leadership and your voice. Good for you, Jim. Thank you for leading. Jim interrupted me and he said, you don't know the half of it. I had to hire armored guards, armed guards, excuse me. I had to hire armed guards for my church and even for my own home. The enemy was vitriolic and violent. The enemy was vicious. And then Garlow, and, and this is Jim to the, to the, to the T. In Garlow-esque form, perfect enunciation, Jim stops himself and he says, but what a wonderful time to be alive. <laughs> and I think, That'll preach because yeah. Jim, Jim knows that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church and that God has placed us as Esther for such a time as this and that 
all things do work together for the good of those that love the Lord. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or in five years. It doesn't look good, logically speaking. Historically speaking, it doesn't look good. George Santayana said, he who doesn't learn the lessons of history is doomed to repeat them. Well, it looks pretty bad right now, logically and historically. But biblically, I don't really mean this, but I'll say it in a hyperbolic way. Biblically, why does it matter? We are put here to fight the good fight for Christ and his kingdom. Like Abraham Kuyper said, reclaim every inch of creation for Christ and his kingdom. That's our obligation. Chuck Colson, engage in the market square of ideas. Be salt to a rotting culture. Be light to a dark world. He, he, he held up William Wilberforce as his mentor, his example. Colson did it time and time and time again. William Wilberforce who spoke on the floor of the British Parliament for over 20 years fighting for the abolition of the slave trade in the United Kingdom. 20 years, nearly a quarter of a century of losses, of frustration, of getting ridiculed and beat up. And he finally prevailed by God's grace. Now, those are models that should embolden us and encourage us. And you know what? If I learned anything by being a college president, Elisa, it was this. Never run away from the storm. Never. You never want run away from the storm. Always wave the banner. Run into the fight. Don't run away from it. And if you win waving that banner, the truth of Christ and the truth of Scripture, great. That's God's grace. But if you lose waving that banner, frankly, who cares? Be willing to go down fighting. If you're not willing to lose, you're never going to win. I think that's a paradox of leadership. I'll say it one more time. If you're not going to, if you're not willing to lose, then you're never going to win. You have to be willing to fight for the cause and go down fighting and lose if necessary for the, for the good of the greater victory. Um, that's a paradox of leadership that I think uh, I learned every day as a college president. Um, the, the, the battle is the Lord's and we need to trust that in our current circumstances. So um, the courage. Be bold and courageous, be steadfast and immovable. These are very important things that were taught in scripture that we must remember and we must honor. We must recognize that these are important principles to leadership. So um, David Horowitz, who's not a believer, uh, wrote his intellectual autobiography called Left Illusions some years ago. Now, David Horowitz, if people don't remember, was part of the Black Panthers back in the 60s. Horowitz was the intellectual heft behind the Black Panthers. Uh, he wrote a lot of their publications, a lot of their uh, magazine articles and whatnot. It was Horowitz. Well, how did this Black Panther radical Marxist become a talking head for conservative ideas today in culture? Not, he hasn't converted to Christ, but he has converted to conservatism. Why? If you read his book, he recognizes and he talks about how he had this epiphany that his worldview was the rule of the gang. Okay? and that the gang always won. The gang would crush opposition. The gang would prevail even if violence was not necessary, and it terrified him. The rule of the gang, the tyranny of the group. And I think as we engage with culture, we need to remember this particular admonition. Never bow the knee to the rage mob. Never. Never bow the knee to the gang to the rage mob. Horowitz recognized his worldview was broken to the extent that he actually repented of Marxism and embraced a conservative worldview because 
it gave greater freedom to be ruled by an ultimate principle, natural law, common sense in the case of Horowitz. If you're a Christian, you believe that that's the revelation of God, that that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's so good. I, I want to give you the last word here, just some final advice. That was so inspiring. Everything that you just said, never bow the knee, always run toward the storm, never away from it. I think this is something a lot of Christians are just now kind of getting accustomed to, because up until very recently, this type of a fight has been a bit metaphorical. It's been theoretical. It, it hadn't really come to our doorstep yet. And it's here. It's at our doorstep. And one of the things I tell audiences when I speak is that it can be very overwhelming because people will ask questions like, well, maybe I could just do the pronoun thing and I don't want to lose my job and little things like that. But it's those little compromises that lead to bigger ones and really tell us who we are. And so I love that advice. Never bow the knee because you can't bow the knee to the woke mob because they'll just crush you anyway. And I think it was, I, I don't know if it was Matt Walsh is somebody who said you can only be canceled if you consent to it. So mm -hmm. even if we have to lose our jobs, I mean, come on, Christians have had to deal with so much worse for the last 2000 years. We have the same word of God and the same Holy Spirit. Uh, so we can do this. But I'll let you close us out with anything you'd like to tell our audience just to, uh, you know, practical advice, any word you want to leave us with today. Well, I, I'll play off of the never bow the knee comment and just further it a bit further. If you do, if you bow the knee, they're going to have your head anyway. I mean, oh. look at the people who have gone on the mass apology tour for saying something that wasn't all that controversial. I mean, calling a woman a woman and saying that a man doesn't have the right to pretend to be one. And then somebody gets criticized by the mainstream media or the academy or whatever, and they apologize for it. It doesn't do any good. They're going to have your head, even yeah. if you do bow the knee. Um, Cranmer recanted, but he was still burned at the stake. So, okay, you can recant if you want, but they're still going to have you. So recognize that courage is going to win the day, not cowardness, not compromise. Um, I would say this, and this is completely off topic, but for moms and dads out there that are thinking of sending their kids off to college, I have one bit of advice for you. Don't send them to any college unless you've checked it out thoroughly, yeah. unless you know whether or not they believe in the inerrancy of scripture. If you know that they believe in the objectivity of truth, ask those questions. What's your view of scripture? What's your view of truth? Ask questions. What's your view of marriage? What's your view of life? Does God define life or do we? Ask these questions, then be quiet. Do the Jesus thing, the Jesus apologetic thing. Ask the question, be quiet. Let the president or the dean of the school of religion talk. Ask questions like, are you all critical of critical race theory or do you affirm it? What was your view on Black Lives Matter? And it's, uh, it's mission statement. Can you tell us what you think of that? Do you have faculty that teach it in an affirming way or that criticize it? Ask these questions. If you don't, you're being a terrible parent and you're not being a good consumer. You're not asking the right questions and your kids will suffer for it. Mm -hmm. So I guess my last, last bit of advice to your listeners, if, if the last several minutes of dialogue that you and I have had mean anything and you're scared for our culture and your kids, then you better do some research before you send your kids off to college, because I can tell you right now that even Christian colleges are imbibing this Kool-Aid yeah. and it doesn't end well for your kids. Mm. That's good. Well, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Everett Piper, for being uh, with us today. Such a rich discussion. Today's podcast is sponsored by Southern Evangelical Seminary, and I loved hearing Dr. Piper talk about the questions that you should ask the college and the university, because if you ask SES those questions, they're going to give you good answers. In fact, SES is one of the only uh, seminaries that I know of that immediately took out and, and constructed a, a position paper on social justice uh, during the unrest 
of 2020, and it was fantastic and just really appreciate SES. I'm a current student there. So go to ses.edu slash Alisa, and you can download a free ebook and check that out there. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. And uh, if you're watching on social media, click like and share, leave a comment, always helps get those algorithms fine-tuned. And uh, LSL, always remember as we pursue Christ to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.